Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to Ergesia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. This is episode 5, What is Work, part 3. In the last episode, we continued our exploration of the question, What is Work?, with an examination of the definition of work provided by the theologian Miroslav Volf in his book Work in the Spirit. We broke Volf's definition down into its component parts and uncovered the central characteristic which Volf argues distinguishes work from other activities, its instrumentality. That is to say, the fact that what makes work work is the fact that it exists as a means to ends that lie beyond the need for its own performance. According to Volf, work is work because it produces products or states of affairs that serve the needs of the human community and the non-human ecology. In the last episode, I also made the argument that, despite Volf's own view, that we should not confuse normative values, such as consistency with human dignity, with the inherent characteristics of work, the very attributes which Volf ascribes to work are themselves an argument that such normative values are, in fact, a part of any definition of work. Thus, honesty, purposefulness, social orientation, need fulfillment, and social and ecological responsibility are all qualities which point toward the consistency of work properly understood with human dignity. Finally, I suggested that the final part of Volf's definition of work, that even if work is an activity that is primarily an end in itself, it still fulfills needs beyond the need for the activity itself, is unhelpful if only because it contradicts Volf's understanding of work as instrumental. My view is that either work is or isn't an end in itself, and the characteristic of instrumentality makes, in my mind, a persuasive argument that work is not an end in itself, but a means to an end that lies beyond the performance of any activity that can be understood as work. The upshot of this examination was that while Volf's definition of work does not directly answer the question what is work, a reality acknowledged by Volf himself inasmuch as he described his definition as a formal description of work, it nonetheless enables us to appreciate what is arguably work's primary characteristic, instrumentality. Moreover, because of the characteristics attributed by Volf to work, that instrumentality is qualified by what I argue is the presence within work of the normative value of consistency with human dignity. In other words, the instrumentality which Wolf identified as work's distinguishing characteristic is not unqualified. The ends for which work is the means are human and ecological flourishing. Activity which does not meet this qualifying standard may be labour or toil, 
but from the perspective of Christian theology and its understanding of the place of work within human life, it is not work. Where then does this leave us in terms of our search for an answer to the question, what is work? Some scholars have argued that work, instead of being defined by instrumentality, or at the least by instrumentality as work's central characteristic, should instead be defined by the notion of compulsion. Work, they say, is activity which is performed as a consequence of some interior or exterior power which compels the performance of the activity itself. This power might be the simple need for physical survival, or the desire for self-expression, or the driving force of one's own ego. This argument has some points running in its favour, but overall I don't think it adds anything useful to our knowledge. On the positive side of the ledger, it acknowledges the reality that, even when performed on a voluntary basis, work is never undertaken simply in order to perform a certain task or tasks. The powers that compel us to work, whether internal or external, mean that even voluntarism in human work occurs because the work itself is addressing some other aspect of our human reality beyond the need to perform the task itself. That in turn draws our attention to the fact that we should never exclude or ignore the dimension of compulsion in work. Work is so intrinsic to the human condition that we are in many respects driven to work, whatever particular form that work may take, and irrespective of whether or not we actively try to avoid work. On the negative side, I think this argument for work as compulsion falls short in two respects. Firstly, it is already addressed by Wolf's formal definition of work. Wolf's notion of work's instrumentality, the fact that work is a means to ends that lie beyond the performance of the activity itself, is essentially the same as the notion of compulsion and being driven to work in order to comply with the demands of some internal or external power. Indeed, the difference between the two is really a matter of terminology. The second problem is that the notion of compulsion fails to address the issue of the presence within work of normative values such as consistency with human dignity. Granted that this is a presence which I deduce from the characteristics which Wolf ascribes to work, and that Wolf himself argues, paradoxically in my view, against the presence of such values, nonetheless the notion of compulsion carries with it unavoidably sinister and dehumanising potentials. Compulsion, after all, can take the form of slavery, forced and indentured labour, trafficked labour, and other forms of social, economic, industrial and personal exploitation and marginalisation. Is activity within such circumstances to be considered work, and therefore part of normative human experience? Or is it to be considered labour or toil, deformed manifestations of human work, that arise from human sinfulness. This, to my mind, is not a question of semantics, but a critical issue of how we understand the place and nature of work within human life. So if compulsion is not a helpful approach, is there a way to conceptualise work that progresses our exploration of this issue? The theologian David H. Jensen 
tackles this question in his book Responsive Labour. Drawing on the work of ethicist Richard Higginson, Jensen argues that work is characterised not by compulsion, however we understand that term, but by obligation to parties beyond oneself and one's own needs. Moreover, this obligation is not another form of compulsion, but arises instead from the ties of relationship and mutual dependence that arise from community and human connectedness. In other words, work is relational activity arising from the obligations of mutual solidarity and care that occur as a consequence of humanity's social interactivity and from its membership of and participation in the wider global ecology. At first glance, this might seem a little like Wolf's characterization of work as social activity, and indeed there is some overlap. Wolf's identification of work as other-oriented and as a collaborative enterprise point to the relational nature of work which Jensen argues forms work's central characteristic. But Jensen goes a step beyond Wolf by drawing on Higginson's notion of obligation. The relational nature of work emerges not merely from the social nature of humanity and its self-interest in serving the needs of the wider ecology, but from the very demands on humankind which those relationships create. Again, this is not the same as compulsion, inasmuch as there is nothing, apart arguably from self-interest, which could either persuade or compel humanity to respond to these demands. Rather, the demand describes what it means to be in relationship itself. Relationality is no mere free association, but calls upon us to surrender some of our own convenience or comfort for the sake of the other. The other-oriented nature of work which Wolf identified is other-oriented precisely because that's what relationship means and requires. Anything else is mere random encounter, even when such encounters produce temporary alliances for the sake of some mutually desired objective. Indeed, relationship properly understood calls upon us to surrender the objects of our desire for the sake of the relationship itself. It is the relationship which becomes our desire, not some external self-oriented objective. Thus Jensen argues that work, understood from the perspective of Christian theology, is activity which we undertake for the sake of relationship in obligation to our desire for relational coexistence with others and the wider ecosphere. The importance of Jensen's focus on obligation as the defining characteristic of work manifests itself when we consider the commodifying potential of work, especially waged labour, as this is experienced in modernity. Surveys and studies aplenty have revealed the trend toward increasingly long hours of work for those who do work full-time, even as the workforce as a whole becomes increasingly fragmented, characterised by casualised labour, insecure tenure, and a move toward outsourced and contracted workforces. This means the pressure of waged labour is extended on two fronts. Firstly, on the increased hours of work experienced by the ever-shrinking permanent workforce, 
and secondly on the necessity of holding down two or even three part-time jobs for the increasing numbers of casual and contracted workers. These fronts put the squeeze on home life, especially in terms of the availability of time for rest and recreational purposes, as well as other forms of work. Indeed, these two forms of work pressure operate hand in glove. Extended work hours or the demands of multiple jobs decrease the time available for other forms of work such as housework and child rearing, which in turn increases demand for services such as housekeeping and child care, both of which are sectors noted for the high levels of casualised and outsourced labour they employ. Another way in which commoditization occurs is the environmental pressure which workplaces assert to encourage or compel employees to stay at work longer. These pressures include all the ergonomic and architectural initiatives, from specially designed lounges and dining areas to on-site gyms and childcare facilities. In other words, the workspace increasingly takes on the characteristics of the home or another social space normally associated with the private sphere of life. The unspoken message behind these initiatives is that it is not necessary for employees to spend as much time at home precisely because the same amenities are available to them in the workspace. The pressure of increased work hours, the demands of holding down multiple jobs and the inversion of the work and home spaces has a commoditizing effect precisely because the disruptive influence they exert on our human relationships inverts our connection to those relationships and makes our home life and the demands of relationship with family and friends the disruptive influence instead. In other words, our nearest and dearest become a burden to us, interrupting what has become the primary demand on our life, the demands of waged labour. Work then ceases being other-oriented and a response to the obligations of relational coexistence. Instead, it becomes self-referential, reducing people to objects and the relationships between people to a commodity negotiated solely in terms of the now primary claims exerted by the workplace. Under this pressure, work becomes an avenue not to human flourishing through mutual solidarity, but to a suffocating isolation in which the presence of others and the demand of relationship with others is an unbearable burden. Jensen's argument for understanding work as activity undertaken in obligation to the demands of our relational coexistence militates this commoditizing effect in several ways. Firstly, it takes seriously the fact that the Bible, across the diversity of its theological perspectives, nonetheless repeatedly takes the side of the worker over against the owner of work. This preferential option, to borrow a phrase from liberation theology, does not occur in antagonistic or oppositional forms. Rather, it proceeds from the scriptural depiction of God as worker, as the one who undertakes the work of creation, and in which work consequently holds a central place in human existence. Thus, work, properly understood, is part of the human response to God's work of creation. The worker is the one whose activity is located in relationship with the divine's act of creativity. 
Secondly, Jensen's view of work understands that work arises not as a consequence of some divine punishment for human sin, but as a product of our very relationship with the created order. Jensen points out, for example, that the second of the creation narratives in Genesis posits a world in which human work is a consequence of humanity's participation within the wider ecosphere, not its alienation from the natural world. In other words, humans work precisely because that work is an articulation of our relationship with the environment from which we draw our sustenance, as well as the raw materials for our industrial and creative output. God's command that humanity keep the Garden of Eden is a reminder of our responsibility to undertake the work of care and nurture for the natural world. Work is a response to creation itself and to our obligation to live sustainably within the limits of that creation. Thirdly, work is an expression of the relational covenant between God and humanity and the consequences flowing from this covenant for intra-human relationships. Inasmuch as work is both a response to God's work of creation and to our relationship with the natural world, it is also an expression of our obligations to one another. Thus, the Mosaic law or Torah contained within the Hebrew scriptures protects both the land and vulnerable sections of the community from exploitation and abuse. The land does not exist for the exclusive benefit of landowners, nor is it a resource to be tapped until exhausted. On the contrary, as set out in texts such as Leviticus, for example, reapers gathering the harvest are forbidden from reaping to the edge of their fields or from gathering up the gleanings of their harvest. Likewise, they are prohibited from stripping their vineyards bare or from gathering fallen grapes. Why? So that the poor and the stranger in the land might come and also gather the fruits of the harvest and not thus be excluded from the richness of creation. But it is also so that the land itself might not be completely denuded and thus unable to regenerate, and so that those who do the work of bringing in the harvest are not overextended and forced to work beyond the limits not merely of human endurance but of reasonable expectation. Fourthly, and related to this last point, Jensen's identification of work as activity arising from the obligations of relational coexistence locates work not as distinct from and in opposition to rest, but as a fundamental aspect of rest itself. God, who worked to bring creation into being, also rested during the course of that creative work, which in Christian theology remains uncompleted and is in fact continually unfolding. Thus, rest in human work is not the cessation or absence of work, but a necessary part of the totality of work that facilitates refreshment and reorientation of the human person. It prevents work from either becoming drudgery or the origin of exploitation, and it recognises that human life is not reducible to domination by one single facet or aspect of our being. Moreover, the necessity for rest reminds us that we are not what we do as work, nor can we achieve full meaningfulness in life as a consequence of work or the achievement which work facilitates. 
Moreover, in the concept of Jubilee, the Hebrew scriptures articulate a process in which land ownership and economic relationships are reset in order to return land to those who have been deprived of their inheritance, to liberate those who have been captured by debt, and restore dignity to those who have been exploited through work. Work, Jubilee declares, must not become a crippling exercise of power, nor cause disruption to human relationships, and when it does, action must be taken to rehumanize work through restoration of relationship and the correcting of economic injustice. In a similar vein, Jensen notes that the gospel accounts of Jesus' life similarly adopt a preferential option for the perspective and reality of the worker, criticizing those who work to exploit others or who use work as an exploitative mechanism. Moreover, many of Jesus' parables cut across the assumptions we make through our idolization of work and both the material rewards and moral superiority which this idolization claims will accrue to us through work. Finally, Jesus' very call to discipleship acts as a disruptive presence over against the influence which the idolization of work exerts on human life. Jesus summons the disciples away from their various trades as fishermen, tradesmen, moneylenders, and so forth, to take up the labor of proclaiming the good news of God's unconditional love. This does not mean those occupations are abandoned or declared worthless. Paul, after all, remained a tentmaker to the end of his life. It simply relativizes work's importance and changes its nature. There is, after all, a fundamental difference between work undertaken as response to God and work that exists as an expression of egotistical self-assertion. The upshot is that Jensen's conceptualization of work as activity arising from relational obligation captures the biblical witness to work's ambiguity in human life, its capacity to be both blessing and curse. On the one hand, work is one of the central platforms that binds human life to itself and to the natural environment of which it is a part. And on the other, it articulates the capacity of work to be abused as a source of exploitation and oppression. Thus, obligation occurs in order to prevent the negative potential within work from arising, or if it does arise, to enable correction of the injustice that results. Moreover, the limitations which the biblical witness places upon work recognizes both the need to prevent human workers and the environment upon which they rely for their work from becoming exhausted, as well as the necessity to facilitate human interaction so as to prevent the commoditization of work and human relationships. More positively, work understood as obligation locates human work squarely within the framework of humanity's relationship with God. Work is part of humanity's creative response to God's own creative work. Moreover, the intertwining of work and rest, not as polar opposites but as mutually complementary aspects of the same totality, reminds us that whilst we might work to live, we do not live to work. Work's value is not its achievement or permanence, but its place within the whole sphere of human life, 
as this is encountered by God's gracious love. Work, when it becomes idolized as the central reality of human life, or as the measure of human worth, alienates us from both the love of God and the dignity of our creation. It becomes not a response to God, but an expression of human sin. Most compellingly of all, however, is that Jensen's notion of work as the product of relational obligation, much like Wolf's characterization of work as instrumental activity, cuts across modernity's tendency to compartmentalize life into mutually exclusive spheres of activity, each with their own distinct moral code that bears no relationship to the moral code of any other sphere of activity. This is not a mere reaction against the fragmenting effects of the cult of individualism or the myth of the heroic autonomous individual. Rather, it is a positive stressing of the universality of all spheres of human life and of our mutual codependence on each other and on the natural environment by which our lives are sustained. It is a reminder of our shared need for solidarity and relational coexistence and a recalibrating of human life away from enclosed self-involvement to other orientation. It is life lived in imitation of the God who, though hidden, is nonetheless revealed, and who, through revelation, seeks relationship with all human life. So, at this juncture of our exploration of the question, what is work, it is time to pause once more and consider. We have, through the work of Wolf and Jensen, identified two of work's key characteristics, instrumentality and obligation. Are there other characteristics, and can these lead us closer to a definition of work? That's something we'll have to leave until the next episode. I hope to have the pleasure of your company then when we continue our exploration of the question, what is work? I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.